Welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Church podcast. My name is Ryan Cagno. The HBIC podcast brings you weekly episodes on the topic of discipleship, where we'll sit down with members of the HBIC family to hear their stories, hear about the different ways people at HBIC are pursuing discipleship. In other words, how they're learning to follow Jesus' example and obey his teachings in their daily lives in practical ways. This week I talk with Bernardo Michael, which continues a trend of me trying to keep up with someone way smarter than me. I get his perspective on specifically the influx of Nepali immigrants and refugees in the Harrisburg area, and then more broadly talk about the importance of knowing our histories as people and as institutions. So whether that's our personal history, whether that's our racial history, um, and how that can help us, how that knowledge and that growth in that can help us to more faithfully engage and love our neighbors, especially across cultures. Bernardo has a lot to say on this as a professor of history and a lot to say on a lot of things. This conversation could have gone a ton of directions. Um, it was fascinating. It was deep. And I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Bernardo, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. A um, couple things I'd love to talk with you about, but maybe we can just start with the the five-minute sketch summary of, of who you are and, and uh, Shanti and just kind of your life. And if you can... Summarize a life yeah, in five yeah, minutes. Of course, yeah. uh, my name is Bernardo Michael. I'm a professor here at Messiah University's History, Department of History, Politics and International Relations. I've been teaching here at Messiah since 2001. I am married. My wife's name is Sara or Shanti. And I have three children and two grandchildren. And so we have a small family. Do you prefer way. children or grandchildren? Ah, well, you know, that's a very interesting question. question. (laughs) Uh, uh, Grandchildren, you can leave at the end of the day, you can return them, but children are always there. Mm. It's a blessing and all blessing comes with growth. Mm -hmm. So there are agents in your life forcing you to grow sometimes, Mm. willingly or unwillingly. Mm. (laughs) So yeah, it's, uh, so that's where we are. Um, uh, I, I spend most of my time teaching and I do research uh, and writing and spend a lot of time with family. We do travels and things like that, the usual things that a family would do. Uh, we've also spent a lot of time with students and extensive amounts of time. Uh, once the grandchildren came, it became a little less, but we've been spent, we've spent time working with students, learning from them, and hopefully traveling with them on the roads that they travel. So it's been a dialogic kind of process mm. and it has been a blessing in many ways. Mm. How did you find your way how did you two meet and then how did you find your way to messiah yes i we met in delhi and her my wife's brothers and i we are childhood friends and so through the accident of that and they somehow kept in touch and so we kept in touch over the decades and then uh i found my way in heading in the direction of either uh, uh, federal government or career-wise or in academia and then I had a kind of a conversion experience. I was 23 at that time. And I felt compelled to leave all of that. And that's how I ended up going to Nepal, which was a place that Shanti was also, my wife was aware of, and uh, worked in a very rural area of Nepal for about seven, eight years. In the meantime, we got married. We kept up our friendship and through various, we had a journey for about five years, and then we decided to get married. And so spent the first two and a half years of our married life in Nepal. Mm. 
And then I decided to return to academic life. I thought uh, I could work on Nepali history. And so that's a close, intimate connection developed with that part of the world. A small, tiny Himalayan kingdom at that time. It was a kingdom. Now it is no longer a kingdom. And so I did my doctoral work on Nepali history and completed in 2001 and then came down to Messiah. And again, Messiah coming to Messiah was quite providential. I had appointments at other places as well, but uh, felt compelled again, drawn to Messiah for various reasons. Um, it's pacifist tradition. It's appealed to me without really knowing the fullness of what pacifism is. Uh, I guess it's one's own marginal location if one has inhabited a space like that. That drew me to Messiah because in that sense, uh, I'll... So that's how I landed up here. I ended up teaching mostly most of their non-Western history courses and began to take students to Nepal and did that for 10 years. So that's how I, uh, my, my pathway, in very short, very brief, without all the drama. Sure, yeah. I mean, we could talk for hours about... <laughs> specifically, I, I mean, one question that emerges for me in, uh, right away is how did uh, her brothers feel when you became romantically involved. yeah well we uh i think we still remained friends okay. more than relatives yeah sure so i think that was easy Good. very easy there was okay. no um, maybe one initial conversation well yeah they you know the it's always the initial conversation <laughs> <laughs> it all went okay i think it went Get well over that hump yeah. and then you're fine they're happy yeah so you. they've remained friends to this day and uh, we we still connect and hang out and talk to each other and challenge each other in many ways so so has it been interesting for you to see some of the changes that have happened in the Harrisburg area in the last decade plus in regard to the growing Nepali population? So you, I imagine 2000, so I've grown up in this area my whole life and I, yeah. 2001 in this area, I don't really recall <laughs> uh, knowing very many Nepali people yes. uh, in this area and you're a Nepali history professor or a professor yeah. of Nepali history. Yeah. And now, at least in, in, in the Harrisburg area, maybe more so than Grantham, yeah, it's yeah, kind of been, yeah, a, a, yeah. you know, yeah, just just for clarity, I'm a professor of South Asian history with a focus on Nepal. Okay, because I might appear to be too much of a specialist on Nepal than yeah. I should, so I don't want to pretend. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, uh, when we came into this area, there were no Nepali, hardly any Nepali population here, and we really did feel lonely at sometimes. And we wished, we just kind of joked with God that, wouldn't it be nice to send some people here? It was just a joke. We didn't, and we were quite convinced uh -huh. it's never going to happen. So you're the you're the original cause. I don't know. <laughs> and ten years fast forward, and the place is steaming with a sizable, growing Nepali population. I believe there are twelve Nepali churches here, mm -hmm. and in some ways they kind of are epitomized or an exemplary, a great example of, I guess, the future of the church in this country, at least where it intersects with refugee populations, and all the opportunities and challenges, some of them intergenerational that go with it. Mm. So now uh, here one can see a, a, a wonderful growing community of, uh, of Nepalis uh, who are actually originally from Bhutan, the kingdom of Bhutan, which is still to this day a Buddhist kingdom in the Himalayan region. So it has been quite amazing and... Uh, a wonderful experience on that front. And we've had a ch chance to engage and in, and uh, meet with members of the community, participate in some of their 
worship services and so on. Great. You said um, something really interesting. You said um, you think in many ways that the, you know, the kind of the influx and especially the Nepali churches you're a part of um, symbolic to you of the future of the church in America um, and then some of the intergenerational dynamics and stuff there. And, and I'd be curious for you to say more about what exactly you meant by that. You know, these um, first-generation churches that are established usually try to reproduce or replicate their own migratory experiences. And sometimes the younger generation that comes up uh, want to see echoes of their, um, of their life stateside. In addition to the migratory pieces that they have seen from their parents. So sometimes that's a great opportunity, but it also can be a challenge because both generations try to communicate and sometimes uh, they struggle to communicate. And this is a challenge across many of the migration mm-hmm. church, these kind of churches that are established. And then the, the, it, op- it offers an opportunity and a challenge to the local churches who now have to develop new cross-cultural skills and which have to be translated theologically and spiritually as well because both find different expressions and to be translated to generations that are in motion. They aren't static. Mm. So that requires a lot of uh, flexibility, agility on the part of the local churches. And so... It's up to them to see that as an opportunity. But if they lack their own inner diversity, then it becomes a challenge. Mm. So oftentimes they may end up offering passive space for these churches to participate. But the engagement beyond would require kind of mission work in quotes here. This is the field. The field has come here now. So how do you reach out? So that calls for all kinds of new levels of thinking strategically mm-hmm. tactically and then people possessing those linguistic and spiritual experiences to mediate that journey mm-hmm. so i think that's it it's a challenge and, a pr- and an opportunity for both ways and both churches will experience these tensions and challenges mm-hmm. and i was attending a a conference the other day, an online conference that uh, Princeton Theological Seminary has a center for Asian American Christianity now. Mm. And they had some very interesting experiences shared by people who are working with the Burmese church and uh, Indian, American, Indian American church. Uh, I don't think any of the Nepali church was there, but I'm pretty sure within the next decade you're going to see an, an expression of their side of the story much more intentionally. Burmese. Uh, Burmese, but um, the Burmese church was being studied by someone. Uh, but I'm talking about the Nepali church. The Nepali church mm-hmm. here is going to find itself expressing this. They already have a new leadership that is emerging and that's wrestling with all of these. So it's going to be a very interesting time. And uh, the old way of doing church may have to adapt to this. How it's going to happen, I don't know. But it's, and so that's the. When you say the old way of doing church, what exactly do you mean? In the old way of doing church, there was no refugee. There were no populations. Mm. It was static. Uh, Racial dynamics was key. So that's another part of the puzzle. If a church hasn't figured out its role in America Mm. against the backdrop of that history, 
So if it's a West Shore church, East Shore, these are all histories already at work. Their congregations have been, uh, as James Baldwin said, impaled on those histories. Mm. So if they haven't figured that out, then they're even one more step removed from figuring what to do with this. Speaking now of the American church in these places. Yeah. yeah. So if, if they have that kind of self-awareness and identity, which I think HBIC has wrestled with for quite a bit of time, so to its credit, that's a great opportunity. Yeah. It has done some of that work, but I think the future is intercultural, multicultural and international, all coming together into this mishmash of a mix. Sure, which takes... I mean, constant, constant work and evaluation yeah. and reevaluation. Resilience, new kinds of skills. Yeah, including language. Language. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think of the journey of this church f- focused f- for much of the history, especially on, you know, kind of reconciling tensions between like white Americans and, and black Americans, right? Um, and how, how much of the discussion in the American church at large has been around when we talk about kind of uh, multi-ethnicity and diversity. I think that's the primary paradigm that like comes to our forefront of our mind. But yeah. now you're talking about the Nepali church or a- any other like um, immigrant church where not only do you have potential language barriers, you now also have the dynamics of first generation versus second and third generations and the different, you know, the, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. Th- those dynamics I've I've heard and read a lot about just even within a you know even within a refugee church for example um, the yeah. generational dynamics and how quickly from yeah. one to the next that can can yeah. really complicate things yeah and that's already at work even in the traditional American church right even right here even before the Nepali refugee mm. that's always at work everywhere generational but it's just, like negotiating yeah, negotiations and yeah. you know that happened in the BIC church David Weaver Zerker has two articles on the BIC church that came out two yeah. years over the yeah. last year he captures some of that the young revolutionaries versus the old guy and, and that keeps happening all the time. Yes. It's just we've added another layer to this mm-hmm. baklava-like pastry <laughs> that's coming up. Yeah. So. Yeah. I um, When I was in Princeton, um, serving at a church in Pennington, technically, which is a town or two over, we were approached by a church, Ebo. Um, it's one of the three major um, people groups in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Um, and they want, we're asking if they could use our worship space. Um, like starting at 12 so when the church was o- when morning yeah. worship was over and um they had been coming out of a church split where this was a this was a group that wanted to worship uh in Igbo. Yeah. Um so it was primarily older <laughs> first generation yeah um folks and they they had kind of split with a larger portion of the younger contingent um, who wanted who started worshiping in English and and they wanted to continue to worship in Igbo. So we had to negotiate um, so we got to see some of those dynamics and see how this, you know, this kind of church of primarily like older or people in their, you know, kind of 50s, 60s wanted to worship in Igbo here and um, tried to do some, you know, uh, think through like having some every quarter or every other month or something. I don't remember having like a community meal like between the two worship services where we would kind of try and, you know, be welcoming to them. And as far as I know, you know, seven or eight years later, they're still worshiping in that building and yeah. stuff. But it's one thing to, like you said, host a church in your building, but um, it's another thing to kind of build 
real and sustainable bridges you know, yeah. between two communities. Yeah. Or even get to the point where it's not two communities anymore. Yes, yes, which is the beloved community, right? Right, <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that dynamic shift in the American church, um, especially in a, in a cultural moment that maybe it's not a moment, it might be much broader and and longer than that at this point, uh, decades now where, uh, the church in America is in decline. Um, the prognosis, uh, you know, uh, for at least for the white church in America, evangelicals, especially, but I guess, uh, across mainline denominations too. So I'll take that part back. Um, been much like doom and gloom and kind of, you know, tracking attendance numbers and things are in decline and X, Y, Z. And some of that is true to the data. Some of that is just a sense of loss of cultural, um, <laughs> you know, primacy and centrality. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting and to just be reminded that the center of gravity for the church globally has shifted already. Mm-hmm. Um, but also in in America, uh, who is going to be leading um, the church into the 21st century? Who might already be kind of leading the church in terms of growth and vitality and vibrancy? Um, ought we, speaking now as a white American Christian, you know, be looking <laughs> to to these newer expressions and people that are 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 worshiping here now as kind of the future in that sense as well. I, I would welcome your thoughts on that. I suppose Willie Jennings has a point, he's a theologian, that, you know, what is needed is some kind of new imagination, um, theological imagination. Mm-hmm. Where is that going to come from? Where is the consensus going to be built for it? Who are going to be the leaders in it? Some of those dynamics are not un- not clear yet, other than the mention of it. So I, I think this is indeed a challenge uh, and I guess a creative moment, an opportunity as well. So I don't have answers, but these are some of the larger puzzles. I mean, on a very grand scale, if I were to think of anything, it is to create a new kind of humanity who are who to live on this planet, the only planet we know as of now. So how does how do we imagine that? Can we go back to the old ways of drawing boundaries and uh, defining Id- Id- identities around certain around certain what we think are important? Should we be more at intersections? Should we be thinking of much more fluidity? Uh, how do you preserve theological relevance then? And so these are, I think, some deeper questions that need to be handled so I don't know who is going to bell the cat on that one but it's going to take a lot of work a lot of serious thinking and reimagination I would imagine and of course if one really wants to create all of this a lot of brokenness as well because you have to we can't create something new in Christ without dying to ourselves I don't know of any other way So who's going to die? Who wants to die? I don't want to die. No. Anybody who does is a diversity, equity, and inclusion work knows how much you have to die in the process. It, mm-hmm. Everyone has to die. So who's going to figure that one out? <laughs> <laughs>
why should I only die? You know, all these various puzzles are there. So, yeah. a long, uh, kind of rambling answer to a very good question. But I think um, that's the place where I like to I like to be. Mm-hmm. It's challenging. It's it is a, it is wonderfully uh, exhilarating and it is refreshing, wearisome. Mm. Uh, but spiritually, it has been very good. To your point of yeah, no nobody wants to die. Nobody wants to be the one to give that up. I mean, uh, I've been in conversations with people that have worked in different churches that were dying um and i won't i won't put on blast which specific denomination this was or anything like that but you know let's say you have a three small churches in one town and this is not forget intercultural anything this is like same denomination same you know primary culture um three of these churches dying conversations brought in of like what does it look like to merge what does it look like to imagine something new and to bring new life by these three struggling churches becoming one church um conversation goes along for a little while and then eventually breaks down when the topic comes up of okay well whose building are we going to use well why are we using why your building what about my building and well we do this program this day and you're saying we do it this day now and it's kind of and then it falls through and, yeah. you know, fast forward 10 years and all yeah. three of those churches have, you know, yes. they rather would just die, die as they are than live and change. We've done that. Humans have done that many times in mm-hmm. the past and will continue to do that. Because mm-hmm. I think the challenge is we are called to live at the edge of who we are. Mm. So Sometimes in these moments of when you are to neg- you have to figure all these things out, you can't do it only seated at the top of the fort on top of the hill. You have to come to the edge of who you are and the world you and I know it as. It is only there you see the possibilities of something new. But that getting to the edge is very hard. And you can climb Mount Everest, but sometimes climbing the Mount Everest in our heart is much more difficult. Hmm. So, and that is sometimes weighed by history, tradition, business as usual what we feel comfortable about so we are called to that journey i think in my opinion only uh, individually and corporately as well so it's a challenge i agree yeah um yeah i don't want to say that too enthusiastically because i don't <laughs> want it to sound like i'm i'm ready to take on that challenge and ready to you know fall on my own sword because i'm sure that's not the case um climbing my own everest <laughs> as you say um I think there part of part of me wanted to hope that you know for the white American church specifically because I don't feel qualified to speak for anybody else um maybe things will get bad enough <laughs> that we will you know be forced to kind of accept the change that fo- that's foisted upon us um but my prior example might belie that possibility. Like maybe <laughs> yeah. our left to our own devices, maybe the, the, the more likely thing is we just we just die. Um, but again, that I, I think I need also to have my own imagination kind of transformed and renewed and, and understand that history is not a, a straight line. It's not either up and to the right or up down and to the right. Uh, you yeah. know, we, don't, we can't predict what will happen. We can't predict what kind of renewal could be right around the tr- corner for 
all of our churches. Yes. Um, and where God's hand is in, in the changes where they were being faced with. But Yes. I don't think it's the extinction of God. At least if you're a person of faith, it's not the extinction sure. of God. It's the extent it may be the extinction of some physical sure. humanly driven enterprise. Yeah. yeah. And God will rearrange the materials and the ingredients and something else will come. The church continues to grow all over. Right. People are always broken and in need. Right. We all need that. So Right. <laughs> I um I have to recognize in myself that I'm I'm I tend to be more comfortable with that reality than than some others. I, I'm a I, I throw things out easily in my home. Like I'm I'm almost eager to do it. Every six months I'm sitting down to rethink from the ground up my jobs and ministries and different things that I'm doing and yeah. need people in my life to say like Ryan just you know <laughs> stop it's fine to leave it for a little <laughs> bit right you don't need to like you know so it's easier for me to say um and it's easy I feel mostly at peace saying like bring on the change like it's uh, you know wherever it comes from but uh, I do recognize that for for many of us um it can be a real challenge so exercising your own imagination on this for a little bit, your theological imagination, how would you like to see the the church in Harrisburg um, step up to the plate and, and uh, in, in the face of, you know, the demographic changes in terms of uh, refugees and otherwise from Nepal? Um, how would you like to see HBIC or just the church in Harrisburg generally... Um, when you, when you envision this new community, um, what does it look like? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> um, I, I, I think churches, as a historian, I can say that churches need to know their history very well or try to know their history very well. And not just because it's an academic exercise, because in the depths of that knowledge, understanding one gets to know why we do business the way we do and why the structure. History has this very interesting way of getting into the wiring and the plumbing and the piping and the structures of the things we humans create. It's there. It's not, some, it's not the past. It's not events. It's, the, it's how they work themselves and create the present that we live in, which will determine ultimately the future we are trying to grasp. So I, I think getting a sense of how f leadership has been constructed in the church, how decisions are made, they usually default in the direction of history. Not, people may make decisions on paper, but it may be decisions that were historically always the way we do. And this may even be in a church that has decided to embrace the vision of a multicultural community. It has to do a much more serious audit of its past. That takes time. It takes effort. So I kind of work on Messiah's multicultural history, intercultural history quite a bit. And, you know, one thing is you get to understand the history of this country better and the way it kind of feels its way through the landscape, literally. I mean, you, you know, for instance, the East and the West Shore are saturated with this history. Mm -hmm. Even though they are geographically, you know, you go, this is geography, that's a river, oh, but the, it is saturated. And what comes out of that geography is this history. Mm -hmm. 
and 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 these communities who have now built communities for worshiping god have to figure that out so some kind of see as audit of one's own history and where how it is affecting and shaping our work in field of missions or the way we make decisions that has to can be done most intentionally and seriously i'm sure hbk is on that road they've been doing this for a long time they've had people come by uh, but they may have to so churches i think that's one i think um the other is yeah it calls for leadership courage and a deep sense of spiritual spirituality is very important so while i kind of harp on the academic the intellect it's not that i think there is a something about spirituality that allows me to go to the edge of who i am at sometimes not all because i don't want to always go to the edge of i can theoretically do it in certain situations that are cool or academically affirming or affirmed in within a DEI diversity equity inclusion space but there are other places of my life that i need to also do that so i don't always know that so only i think god gives us vision into that part of my life that is in the shadows that has not yielded itself to the hand of god that has not been brought into greater relief So I think that is the other part it's his personal journey and it's also an institutional one because institutions also behave in similar ways because ultimately they are made by human beings mm-hmm. who are acting out their dreams and visions and passions and what has been historically mandated to them we work under that mandate whether we like it or not So I think um, those are some of these personal kinds of I mean if that can be built into some kind of way in the way leadership functions in a church the way its committees work the way prayer and meditation and all of that works and with the hand of God uh, behind we can be shepherded along the way So I think those are the two things that come to mind I am biased because I'm a historian sure. and the second is this kind of personal self audit as well So yeah an analogous process is happening just at the individual level and the the institutional, institutional one, level. Yes. Yes. I think it's a really wise um I'm even I'm you know my mind went to the individual um personal uh level of, you know, doing participating in um like family systems therapy for example and how you know so here's me saying that you know for the past 5 years I've I've gone monthly to talk with a therapist and um you know when I first came it was uh I'm dealing with this and this and this I'm dealing with this with anxiety I'm dealing with this other thing and this depression and 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 whatever else it was um and he was like okay well let's talk about your relationship with your parents and your grandparents and and your your how many siblings you have and I was like well how in the world is any of that relevant and and you know therapist was like well that's everything like that's you need to begin to understand that you didn't spring ex nihilo out of the void with these problems but that um you have a history you have a personal history um and and so much of what you experience now and think and and everything is just contingent yes. upon that personal history and our church didn't spring out of nowhere either right it's contingent on our history and and the point of that being i personally and our church can't um as faithfully relate to other people <laughs> yes till we understand our own contingency yes. on that history right yeah yeah um especially if we have not lived 
in a more like pluralistic setting and you just there's you live in the default right <laughs> mm-hmm. of which uh the this is i mean this is i guess one one way of construing white supremacy and, and centrality is just that idea of like white supremacy in its purest form is when you just don't have to like even you're not even cognizant of yeah. your own yeah. race and your own history and contingency yeah. you're just like oh this is how we are this is how everyone is this is yeah. how it's always been yeah. um so encountering history as a way of peeling back that layer and, and adding that level of, of cognizance to it and that equips us so well then to interact with well it equips us better than otherwise yeah. to interact with other people and um be open to difference and whatever it is god has for us and other people yeah. to learn yeah yeah i mean i think what you're pointing out to is nowadays there's a lot more talk about it is the actually the connections or the intersections between uh, spiritual growth and awareness and health and emotional health and this is kind of for me this was in some ways new uh, because culturally i don't think i was as sensitive as i need to be in that area so i've been learning a lot more about that but it's not enough to learn i think uh, my faith has to help me learn so it's not just an academic it's actually an inner transformation so i think we are, that is something that has really been quite touching for me powerful for me because again it's very interesting uh, they are all talking about emotional health but half the story there is history again because they all want to go back and they would say what's it fam they call it fam the phrase they use is family of origin which usually right. means a couple of generations yep. i would argue it's even older mm-hmm. so i mean there are much older things at work in us for instance uh, very patriarchal ways of behaving are very deep very old i would argue they are thousands of years old they have taken time to form and shape and they mediate our consciousness and the way we see and perceive and act in the world very nat- what we in natural ways but they are natural they are actually derived out of a particular kind of history that one needs to acknowledge that could be very old and deep so sometimes that is very difficult to deal with then is the church able to address that very pressing question which may actually be a planetary one so big it is that it's the planet right so how can you question the planet i just stand on it right <laughs> so how do you critique that how do you where are you going to begin that what kind of framework yeah. and will be ready we, for it how do we critique the spinning ground beneath our feet <laughs> it might uh, lead to the unpacking of much more than we bargained and that might be much too much of a cost to bear yeah well uh, as you say i mean the spiritual dimension to this is everything and i don't think it's in my example i wouldn't want to reduce it to only like an emotional dynamic here it's i mean the new community is something that is being formed by the spirit of jesus and forged in his blood right i mean as ephesians 2 and and Colossians 1 and these different places kind of tell us this is one of the main things <laughs> that's happening in the gospel is boundaries you know boundary walls of hostility are being broken down and and two are becoming one thing and um no more slave or free greek or barbarian and you know male or female um it's not for nothing that scripture speaks of that process in terms of 
you know, the work of the spirit, you know, you know, Colossians one talks about it like cosmically, you know, just as in Christ, all things came to be and, and in through him and for him, but also through his sacrifice on the cross that, um, you know, we are being every, all things are being reconciled to one another. Um, being made into a new community where we are <laughs> united and somehow like, you know, more who we were created to be than we were at first. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it looks like all a, a word that has taken on new relevance and significance. It's an old one. It's, it's love. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? It is actually quite a expansive idea to love and you know not just to love somebody but to love god to love a neighbor and a john 4:18 says to love without fear because perfect love has no fear so what is perfect love how can i be there and you realize love is when it's conditional as it usually is it's all contingent upon so many different variables and it's perfect love has no fear so that place to be there that that's what I think the message of Jesus Christ is to be that but and and impart that throughout our lives and and thereby in the world that we are trying to build um, unfortunately that's the challenge that we you know humans are struggling with over the millennia mm. it's a good word to end on I think uh, the path before us is uh Simple and difficult, right? You know, <laughs> it'd be easier if there was like, well, here's the three very specific steps that you can carry out. It's like, no, it's love. That's what it's been, right? You guys just are taking a couple of thousand years to <laughs> wrap your heads <laughs> to around. To figure out what that word means, actually. <laughs> and still keep, haven't fully figured it right, out. <laughs> keep unpacking that. No, that's, that's great, Bernardo. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Ryan, for, for inviting me and giving me a few minutes. Yeah, absolutely.